It turned to me and it had no face. A twisted human figure crawling like a spider. And then all we hear is the creaking of that door. I dismissed it as a dream. You know when you can just feel something is hovering right behind you. They could see us, but we couldn't see them. Hello, believers, non-believers, and everyone in between. I'm Sapphire Sindalo. As a Filipino-American who's been obsessed with the supernatural my entire life, I've always been disappointed by the lack of diversity in the paranormal community. So I created Stories with Sapphire, an award-winning podcast that is on a mission to share more multicultural stories about ghosts, folklore, and spirituality from an empathetic point of view. Even if you're not a believer, I hope my show inspires you to look at the world a little differently. New episodes every other Wednesday, wherever you listen to podcasts. And in between those weeks, I release a spooky animated video on my YouTube channel. Head over to storieswithsapphire.com for more information. That's Sapphire, S-A-P-P-H-I-R-E. Salamat and good night. Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. How are you this week? Do I have some doozies for you all tonight? Let's just jump in, shall we? First up is a story by a new author to the show, and listen to me. Are you listening? Listen, you need to go read the trigger warnings. If you are in any way having a more sensitive than usual week, and we know sometimes that happens with you, that's fine, me too, I can relate, I highly suggest reading the trigger warnings. Again, trigger warnings, they're in the show notes. The author himself said that he knew it was really gruesome and was a little worried, and I told him that you could either handle it or would read the trigger warnings and skip it and it would be fine, and neither of us would receive angry emails. So don't make me look bad, okay? Just read them. Did you read them? Thank you. I'm sorry, but, you know, I gotta cover all my bases. I don't want to be the reason for anyone having a bad time. And while I'm nagging, drink your water too. I love you. Now, let's just get on with the story, okay? This comes from author Ben Schleter. This is Opinions. People say opinions are like assholes. Everyone has one, but no one wants to hear them. Unfortunately for me, I happen to live in the asshole capital of the United States, Florida. I was a detective in one of the bigger counties in this wonderful state for 20 years. I have literally seen everything, and nothing ceases to amaze me. At least, that's what I thought until the bumper sticker killer showed up. So far, only three bodies have been found and identified, but I know there are more to come. As I said before, 
I have seen a lot of fucked up stuff throughout the years. Autoerotic asphyxiation, Colombian neckties, dumpster babies. Well, you get the point. People are sick. Some claim to be good and love others and even do things to help those in need. But when it comes down to it, there's only one thing any human cares about. Themselves. Back to the bumper sticker killer. Some say he or she is a highly disturbed person who needs to be locked up or put to death. Others, however, feel they're an anti-hero of sorts. A vigilante. Ironically, I guess it all depends on your opinion. I'm here to tell you what I read and what I saw in the crime scene report and photos. So far, there has been zero evidence at any of the crime scenes. No prints, no blood, no hair, nothing. No trace. This perp is good. Really good. A ghost. Inside connections, maybe? These murderers aren't just random acts of violence. These murderers are planned out in great detail. These people are researched, studied, watched. There are only two things all the victims have in common. First, they all had bumper stickers on their vehicles that expressed strong opinions that many people would find offensive. Second, they all suffered greatly before the end. The first victim was Martha Ray Greystone. She drove a silver 2010 Honda Accord. She had several anti-abortion bumper stickers. Something along the lines of, abortion is murder and pro-God equals pro-life. The killer obviously disagreed. Martha was a good old Southern Christian woman of God she went to service every week where she wore her Sunday's best, praised Jesus, and listened intently as the preacher blamed all the problems in the world on abortion and homosexuality. She sang in the choir, was president of the Church Ladies Book Club, and helped collect the donations each and every week. In her free time, she played bingo and blogged about how liberals, baby murderers, and f would all burn in hell. One of her favorite pastimes was standing outside the Planned Parenthood building and harassing anyone walking in or out. She was even arrested and charged with a misdemeanor for throwing a bucket of pig's blood on a young couple as they exited the clinic. According to her blog, she was so proud of what she had done in the name of Jesus Christ. Her remains were discovered by some punk-ass teenagers out for a day of graffiti-filled fun. They broke into an abandoned warehouse down by one of the shipyards. They were surprised to find a silver Honda Accord parked inside and were thrilled at the opportunity for an afternoon joyride. The boys approached the car, and that's when the smell of death and decay invaded their nostrils. Upon further investigation... They discovered Martha's body. The good news is that neither of the teens will ever illegally spray paint or steal a car ever again. The bad news 
is that after seeing that crime scene, they will both be in therapy for many years. Martha's body was in an office near the back corner of the warehouse. The walls of the office were plastered with a myriad of anti-abortion bumper stickers, literature, and printed copies of Martha's hate-filled blogs. There were also pictures. Pictures of deformed babies, back-alley abortion clinics, and the mutilated young women who suffered the illegal procedures. Martha's naked, decomposing body lay upon a metal desk bolted to the floor in the center of the room. Her legs were strapped down and chained with thick iron links wrapped around the table and padlocked together. Her mouth was crudely sewn shut with thin wire. Dried blood, snot, and tears dripped down her chin and splattered on her wrinkly, saggy breasts. In life, Martha was a slightly obese, gray-haired, pink-faced, 63-year-old woman. In death, Martha was a skeletal, balding, gray-green-faced monster. From recent pictures, I guessed her to be around 5 foot 4 inches tall and weighing about 165 pounds. Her corpse was 5 feet tall and the autopsy put her at 90 pounds. Her shrunken, rotting corpse spread eagle on the table. Flies buzzed around the room and maggots greedily ate away at her exposed wounds. The skin where Martha's ankles were strapped had been rubbed, stretched, and torn all the way to the bone. At this point, the skin around the straps had fallen down like socks that had lost their elasticity. Her legs from the crotch down were covered in old dried blood that had also pooled on the table and floor. Her genitals appeared to be mutilated. Next to the table, within reach, was a small wheeled table cart. Upon the cart was a note and two objects. One of the objects was a dull butcher's knife. The other was an old, rusty coat hanger, unwound and formed into a long hook. The note on the table said simply, The key is inside you. The autopsy revealed no incriminating evidence, and only two facts. One, Martha died of a combination of dehydration and blood loss. Two, there never was a key. The second victim was found via an anonymous tip and a large murder of crows and hovering buzzards. Mr. McConnell's body was hanging from a noose tied to the branch of a large live oak growing in the backyard behind his home. Bill McConnell lived in a filthy, dilapidated, shithole, single-wide trailer on the outskirts of Everglades National Park. Bill was what they called a good old boy. He drove a truck, owned lots of guns, hunted anything and everything, and drank lots of cheap whiskey. 
he was very loud and proud of what he considered to be his southern heritage. Bill's house and truck were both adorned with several Confederate flags and bumper stickers and other paraphernalia declaring his hate for Democrats, Jews, African Americans, and just about everyone. Bill was also a devoted member of the KKK. He wore his robes proudly at local courthouse demonstrations and attended all the annual meetings. Bill was also an avid blogger. He loved spewing his hate all over the World Wide Web. His criminal record was quite extensive. As a younger man, Bill was not what you'd call an upstanding citizen. He was arrested and placed on probation for breaking into a senior citizen's home and stealing medication and personal belongings. Sometime later, he did a year for holding up a liquor store with an illegal firearm. Lastly, Bill did three years for aggravated assault. He beat a man half to death outside the local bar because the guy spilled Bill's beer. As I said, Bill's bloated, putrid carcass was found hanged outside his home. He was adorned in his finest hooded robe. His hands were tied behind his back, and his mouth was covered with a Confederate flag bumper sticker. The autopsy showed that the cause of death was cerebral hypoxia, caused by the closing of the carotid arteries. Based on other findings, this was probably a relief for Bill. The coroner concluded that Mr. McConnell had been shackled by the wrists and ankles for days, based on the amount of skin loss and swelling. His body had been branded 15 times, twice on the face, one time on each hand and foot, and nine more times on his chest. The branding wounds were deep, and the skin around them blistered like tiny pus-filled volcanoes. His back was completely covered with deep welts, caused by a whip of some kind. This, of course, ruined Bill's favorite robe due to the blood and oozing infected pustules that covered his raw, ruined back. His eyeballs were missing, most likely plucked out by the birds. The cherry on the Sunday was that Bill McConnell's tongue had been forcibly ripped from his mouth and nailed to the tree. Blood dripped down the trunk from the rotting, shredded hunk of flesh. No evidence to identify Bill's killer was found at the scene. The third victim's name was Ian Scott. I assume by now you would conclude that Ian was not a very nice person, and you would be correct. Ian was an avid white supremacist, a skinhead. Ian drove a beat-up old Ford pickup. His bumper sticker of choice read, Proud to be right, proud to be white. Ian's father was a wannabe Nazi, so naturally Ian followed in his footsteps. 
He officially joined the Aryan Nation at 15 and shortly thereafter spent two years in juvie for kicking the shit out of and stabbing the black paper boy for throwing his dad's paper on the lawn and not on the porch. After Ian turned 18, he moved on to bigger and not necessarily better. He was charged with armed robbery, attempted murder, and rape. He pleaded guilty to the robbery and attempted murder, so the rape charge was dropped. Something tells me he did it, though. He did 15 years in the state penitentiary, where he got lots of beautiful swastikas and other Nazi tattoos all over his body. Ian's remains were discovered by the prep cook at a local pizza shop. I won't say which one. I wouldn't want to ruin your next pie. Anyway, the prep cook arrived at 9am to prepare the pizza dough for the day. The back door was unlocked. When he entered, the smell made him gag. Upon further inspection, he noticed that the oven and the fans above it were on. It was the night guy's job to make sure both were off and the doors were locked. The prep cook figured Jeff the night guy just got too stoned and forgot to close up properly. When he went to make sure all the ovens were on, he noticed burn marks at the bottom of the oven door. He tried to open the door, but it was welded shut. The prep cook didn't know what to think, so he called the owner, who called the police. After some work with an angle grinder, the police were able to open the oven door. The smell of burnt meat mixed with burnt hair blasted them in the face. That's when they found what dental records would later identify as the body of Ian Scott. Ian's body was a charred, melted, still-smoking black mess. Huge chunks of blistered skin had to be scraped off the oven stone. What was left of Ian looked like an ancient preserved mummy, scorched by black smoke and fire. The cause of death was listed as carbon monoxide followed by carbon dioxide poisoning. Simply put, the fucker was cooked alive and choked to death on the fumes emitted from his own burning flesh. Again, no evidence at the scene. The bumper sticker killer. Sounds kind of cheesy to me. I would prefer something cooler like The Equalizer. I love those movies. I guess I shouldn't be picky. We now know what can happen to those with strong opinions. Right now, I'm sitting here in the local mall parking lot, typing out this story and people watching, observing the herd, if you will. I'm putting this out there as a warning of sorts. Remember what I said about opinions. Keep them to yourself, or you may cross my path someday. That car that pulled into the spot in front of me has a bumper sticker that says, My kid beat up your honor student. That's not very nice.
last story of the evening comes from Velma Kelly. You know Velma from her work, Gravely Mistaken and Shadow Man, both fan favorites on this show. Well, tonight we have for you Valentine's for Veronica. as a mailroom clerk for a successful investment office. I loved my job, sorting mail, filing paperwork, etc. But the best part is that 80% of my work functions are performed in a desolate mailroom on the first floor of the building. No one to bother me or tell me how to perform my duties. Just me and the mail sorting machine. But for the remaining 20%, I travel all four floors, office to office, cubicle to cubicle, doling out envelopes, packages, and those office subscription magazines nobody reads. For the most part, I like this part of my job too. It gives me a chance to socialize on my own terms and almost everyone is friendly, or at the very least, polite. However, that applies to everyone except the executives on the fourth floor. It's no surprise, in an industry like this one, that every single executive on the fourth floor was male and were quite vile in nature. A common opinion was that these men have no idea what it means to be professional, but if anyone were to ask corporate, they are the company's star players. They're the guys that convince rich people to invest their capital in our company's products and services. Their job is to wine, dine, and maybe even provide a lady of the night, or so I've heard. They get the big bucks through the doors, never doing a lick of work for the client afterwards, while the other three floors below do the real work of investing and maintaining the client's satisfaction. Even though the process of work trickling down is common knowledge, the investment officers receive all the accolades and bonuses for the referrals, and everyone else is expected to be happy working for peanuts. But, I digress, that is not the reason I dread making my way up to the fourth floor. In fact, I wish greed was the only behavioral problem they all had up there. Being on this floor felt somewhat like being in a frat house. If you took away the beer funnels and strobe lights, replaced t-shirts with ties, you would have the fourth floor of my building. While up there, I've seen men gathered around a computer screen with clear pornographic sounds coming out of the speakers. The guys will often joke and prank each other in loud and inappropriate ways that end up making other people on the floor feel distracted and uncomfortable. The kitchen is always a complete mess, and I've been told by various receptionists that they have to stay late to clean it up on a daily basis. I know what you're thinking. Why hasn't anyone complained? I've asked, and they have. Every single woman on that floor has filed at least three or more complaints on the vulgar behavior they've experienced, but nothing ever happens. Human Resources always claims they've forwarded the information to the individual's supervisor. No one believes this actually happens, because the one time a receptionist followed up with an individual supervisor, she did not return to work the next day. Within the last six months, a new front desk receptionist had been hired for that department. She was much younger than most of the women that remained working on the fourth floor. 
Her name was Veronica, and she quickly became known as the office hottie throughout the entire building. With a face like Megan Fox and a figure like Marilyn Monroe, she was a sight to behold in our drab office. She'd typically wear form-fitting clothes with long sleeves that flared out at the wrist. I always felt her style reminded me of Cher, but business. I told Veronica this one day, and she let out a full, melodic laugh before giving me a warm smile. (sighs) Every time I interacted with her, it felt like a twister was swirling around in my stomach. Veronica was always kind, jovial, and a phenomenal conversationalist. We chatted about history, astrology, current events, popular culture. I felt like we would never run out of things to talk about. And... After all the months of getting to know her, I became a pining fool, just like everybody else. Assuming Veronica was heterosexual and not a lesbian like myself, I never had any intention of divulging my romantic feelings. I was content just to have a connection with her. And then came Valentine's Day. I swear, this is one of the busier holidays in my department just after Christmas and tax season. During the month of February, I sort through so many pink and red envelopes, I can't even look at those colors for at least a month afterwards to give my eyes a break. I was curious to see if anyone had given Veronica any gifts, although I was sure someone, if not every man who ever knew her, had probably sent her something in the hopes of getting her precious attention. When the elevator doors opened to the fourth floor, I was completely shocked by how correct my assumption had been. Adorning Veronica's front desk were dozens of bouquets, balloons, and stuffed animals. There were so many flowers, it was actually quite breathtaking to see and smell. There were lilies, stargazers, too many roses to count, and baby's breath speckled all about. The balloons and stuffed animals were your typical Valentine's fanfare, and I even noticed an all-too-familiar teal bag with white lettering. Someone had actually sent her jewelry. I giggled to myself, thinking about them like cartoon characters with their tongues out and hearts in their eyes, hoping for a shot with their dream girl. Veronica and I chatted as usual until I eventually said something about all the gifts. Her eyes grazed over everything as she gave me a sly smirk. Veronica told me every single investment officer on the fourth floor had given her a present, which included an invitation for Valentine's dinner. I was shocked. Most, if not all, of the men on the fourth floor were married. Surely the whole lot of them were not so deplorable to cheat on their partners for someone they hardly knew. Almost as if she read my mind, Veronica laughed and gave me a wink. I asked if she had decided who she would go out with, and lazily, she replied, Derek. My stomach dropped. Of all the guys that had asked her out, why did Veronica choose Derek? He was truly one of the top offenders on the fourth floor. Derek was the kind of guy that thought being loud and obnoxious automatically meant he was funny, Furthermore, he had the worst manners of any person I had ever seen. 
On more than one occasion, I heard him belch and pass gas in his office, quickly followed by raucous laughter. Even more so, he had been known to fly past basic verbal harassment and went straight to sexual assault in the office. A lot of women that had come and gone on the fourth floor filed complaints about being cornered and groped by Derek. But clearly, nothing ever happened to him because Derek was still employed at the company while the claimants were not. I myself had a very similar experience to those women, which told me that his predatory nature was not specific to any floor. I was in the break room, commonly used by all departments, on the first floor. It was about six in the morning, my usual start time, and I was preparing my coffee while enjoying the calm that came with a near-empty office building. I was startled out of my revelry, when I heard footsteps entering the cramped space. I looked over to see a very disheveled Derek, making his way through the maze of tables and chairs, directly towards the coffee machine. I turned my back to face the counter, hoping he would just get himself some coffee and be on his way. Derek and I had hardly ever interacted in the past, and I was more than fine with us remaining strangers. I tensed as I felt his presence right behind me, and I waited for him to move around or to pour a cup. But instead of doing this, he moved forward and pressed the front of his body against the back of mine. I froze, hoping that this was all a mistake and that he would quickly move away once he realized what he'd done. But as soon as I felt his hot breath on my neck and the putrid smell of hangover burning my nose, I knew that this was intentional and most likely malicious. I don't remember commanding my body to act, but it did anyways. I swiftly elbowed Derek in the gut and quickly moved to the side as he doubled over, accidentally hitting his head on the edge of the counter as he did. Not wanting to see what he would do next, I made my way out of the break room as fast as I could, Derek's cries of pain ringing through the empty hallways. I never reported this incident, as I was well aware what happened to any woman that complained about Derek specifically. I needed this job for so many reasons, and I was not going to let his actions force me out of employment. My face must have saddened after Veronica said Derek would be her date because she asked if I was feeling okay. I quickly smiled and assured her I was fine. Just felt a headache coming on was all. I had never told Veronica about my experience and didn't want to bring it up now. We smiled and said our goodbyes as I took the mail cart to make my rounds on the fourth floor. The day passed like any other, and pretty soon, it was quitting time. After getting home, I changed and took my dog for a run as I usually did after work. By the time I was finished and showered, it was around six in the evening and I was famished. I knew there was no way I could snag a table for one the night of Valentine's Day, so I decided to order takeout from my favorite local Italian place. I called in the order before getting into the car and then headed over to pick up my food. When I got to the restaurant, the place was packed. I made my way through the crowd and up to the seating hostess to let them know I was there to pick up my order. As the hostess went back to get my food, 
I looked out over the seating area and casually observed all the different couples scattered around. Some of them were engrossed in conversation, others distractedly looking at their phones. I started to get the feeling that someone was staring at me and looked for the source until our eyes met. It was Veronica, clearly on her date with Derek. I could only see the back of Derek's head, but it seemed to be lulling to one side. I looked back at Veronica, who was still staring right at me. We locked eyes for what seemed like hours, until the hostess pulled me from the hypnotic state with the appearance of my to-go order. I thanked her and made my way out of the restaurant. Just before exiting, I took a quick glance behind me to see Veronica still looking in my direction. I sat in my car for a moment, a buzzing feeling coursing through my body to the top of my head. Thinking that my hunger was causing me to feel lightheaded, I decided to eat my meal in the parking lot before driving home. By the time I finished eating, the crowd began to thin inside. I just happened to look up from my lap as Veronica and Derek were leaving the restaurant. It seemed like Veronica was looking my direction, but in the dimly lit parking lot, it was hard to tell, so I assumed it was just coincidence. I noticed that Derek was stumbling a bit, and it looked like he was leaning on Veronica for support. Upon reaching their destination, I realized Veronica had driven them to their date in her car. This seemed pretty strange because Derek was always going on about his expensive European car, and it seemed like tonight would have been the perfect opportunity for him to show it off. While mulling over these thoughts, I watched Veronica pull out of the parking lot and suddenly felt an intense urge to follow them. So, I did. I knew our caravan was going in the direction of Veronica's rented home, because she had mentioned in conversation that she rented an adorable cottage just on the outskirts of town. As Veronica pulled into the property and parked under the carport, I quickly drove past them. The street ended in a cul-de-sac, so I made a U-turn and drove back towards the house. The cottage was old and in serious need of a paint job, but the picturesque landscape surrounding the building made up for its outdated appearance. Luckily, Derek and Veronica had already gone inside when I pulled up. I parked my car across the street and watched them, silently. The front of the cottage had large bay windows with no curtains, allowing me to see inside perfectly with all the lights on. Derek still appeared to be drunk, but not in a sloppy frat boy kind of way. He was docile, and the look on his face was almost euphoric. I watched as Veronica led him like a puppy towards the back of the house, most likely to her bedroom. I was starting to feel anxious, thinking about what would happen next, not just out of disgust for Derek, but also because I truly cared for Veronica and felt she deserved better than someone as foul as him. While having these thoughts, I felt a rush and that buzzing feeling again. Before even realizing my own actions, I got out of the car and walked across the street towards the house. Everything went black while approaching the cottage. 
The lights from inside went out and clouds obscured the moon, shrouding the property in darkness. Still not sure what was compelling me, I made my way around the home towards the back, where soft light glowed from a single window. I'd never had voyeuristic fantasies before, but went to the window and peered inside nonetheless. Although dark without electric light, the room had been filled with dozens of lit candles casting shadows of dancing flames on every wall. Other than fiery shadows, the walls of the bedroom were bare of any decoration or pictures. After my eyes adjusted, I realized the candles had been placed all over the bedroom floor. The room was empty of any furniture except for a bed, which had been positioned vertically underneath the window I was peering through. That's when I noticed Derek. The whole time I had been looking through the window, he had been lying in the bed directly below. He was looking up at me with a goofy grin and I almost screamed, clapped both my hands over my mouth before I could. I had been caught peeping and felt disgusted with myself. I wanted to run away, but it felt like my feet had been welded into the ground beneath me. When I looked back at Derek, I realized his arms and legs had been strapped to the bed. He wasn't fighting his constraints, so I assumed it was just a sexual kink and nothing serious. I made another attempt to walk away, but my feet would not take even one step. Frustrated, I looked through the window just as Veronica was entering the bedroom. She came in wearing a black silk robe with a hood up over her head. I wasn't sure if it was because of my position I was looking from, but Veronica looked so much taller than I remembered. The tip of her hood was practically touching the ceiling above her. Her arms were out to her side like a starfish, and I could see long, bony fingers with large, protruding knuckles. And instead of a French manicure, her nails were long and dense, like talons. As she pulled down the hood of her robe, I could see that she had grown, and so had her hair. Instead of the chic bob I was used to, her hair was long and appeared to be very thick. Usually her hair was straight and smooth, but this time it was ragged with frizzy curls. I was horrified and looked down at Derek to see if he felt the same, but instead of a look of fear, he still had the same euphoric facial expression, which changed into a large, silly grin once he noticed Veronica was there, drool oozing down his chin in excitement. The beauty of her face remained, but her skin was sickly pale, almost luminescent. When she smiled at him, or maybe me, her radiant smile was replaced with far too many teeth all crowding her mouth like stalagmites in a cavernous abyss, and they seemed as sharp as the claws on her fingers. All I wanted to do was scream and run away, but I was still frozen in place. The scream caught in my throat like a piece of dry bread. The air around me felt stagnant, 
and I realized all the sounds and chittering from nocturnal creatures had stopped. Everything was still. It felt like we were all waiting to see what happens next. In that moment, Veronica dropped the black robe, which silently fell to the floor, revealing her naked body. With skin as white as milk, the red scars that covered her from shoulders to knees were not hard to miss. Many looked like lashings, especially the ones across her belly, but others were clearly deep cuts made with something sharp. Before I could take in any more of her appearance, she laid her head back and let out a shriek. The sound was horrid, and it lasted for several seconds before she closed her wide mouth, which seemed to have grown wider with the movement. In an instant, Veronica was at Derek's side before she leaped onto the bed and straddled him. A part of me hoped this was all some sort of consensual sexual experience, but that didn't explain why I'd been supernaturally forced into this situation, if only as a spectator. Veronica sat for a moment, as if contemplating something. She looked both grotesque and ethereal as the clouds moved and she was bathed in moonlight. The unholy angel of death came to mind for some reason and instinctively I knew what was coming next. As if almost on cue, Veronica traced one claw from Derek's collarbone down to his navel and then waited a moment. Soon, a thin line of blood appeared along the area she had traced, and I realized she had slit him open with the sharpness of her nail, like a razor blade. She then placed a hand on either side of him and proceeded to rip open his chest like two flaps on a cardboard box. I could hear his flesh ripping and saw squirts of blood showering Veronica as she continued to dig deeper into the cavity of Derek's chest. I felt rather than heard when she opened his ribcage to reveal his heart. Veronica let out a raspy squeal of delight as she plunged her face into his splayed chest. When she came back upright, Derek's pumping heart was firmly clasped between her teeth. I watched in utter shock as Veronica began to devour his heart with the elation of a child receiving an ice cream on a hot summer day. Another dizzy spell came over me, but unlike the feeling that had brought me here, this one was more familiar. I was going to pass out, and only moments before everything went black, Veronica and I made eye contact, just as we had earlier that evening at the restaurant. Only this time, the bottom half of her face was covered 
and dripping blood and viscera. After regaining consciousness, I discovered that I was in my bed and it was now morning. I looked down to see my loyal pup cuddling at my feet and I let out a long sigh of relief. Surely the memory from last night was nothing more than a pasta-induced night terror. Although I don't remember much after eating in the restaurant's parking lot, there's almost no doubt in my mind that I made it home safely and simply went to bed once I got home. Almost no doubt. I still felt a lingering buzz like I had experienced at the restaurant, so I decided to use a personal day and take a three-day weekend to get my head straight. Throughout the day, I thought about Veronica and her date with Derek. I would get flashbacks of my nightmare and wondered if the date ended well or not. Several times I wanted to text her. We had exchanged numbers only to carpool for an off-site work event, but we had never texted socially. It felt awkward to be the first one to start a conversation this way, especially by asking her about a date with someone that made my skin crawl. With the determination not to text or even think about Veronica, I packed up my pooch and went camping for the weekend. The weekend had been perfect, just what I needed to shake off that weird feeling I'd been having the last few days. Monday morning came around and after starting my shift, I went about my day as usual, anticipating a conversation with Veronica. I had butterflies in my stomach as the elevator took me to the fourth floor. But the retracting doors opened, showing that Veronica was not at her desk. In fact, there was almost nothing at her desk except for a monitor, keyboard, and phone. My heartbeat quickened, thinking about all the possibilities for her absence. I went over to Derek's office and discovered the exact same items. The message was clear. Both people had cleaned out their desks. Whether voluntary or not, I wasn't sure. I looked for Gladys, who would always take mail in the absence of a front desk receptionist. She said that Veronica was only a temporary employee and that her contract with us ended on the 15th. I asked why Derek's office had been cleaned out, and Gladys gave a devilish grin before filling me in on everything I had missed. Gladys began by saying Derek came in Friday more hungover than he had ever been. He wasn't making any sense and smelled really bad, like he'd been sweating profusely for days without a shower. But that wasn't even what finally did him in, according to Gladys. Apparently, Derek had been caught embezzling from the company and had been doing so for the last couple of years. Derek was fired on the spot and practically thrown out by security. I asked how Derek was able to drive given the state that he was in at the time, and Gladys claimed that to be the strangest part of it all. Derek had been sprawled out on the ground in front of the office building and just laid there, face down, for several minutes. Then, a black car with tinted windows pulled up and, almost like something had snapped in his ear, Derek stood, opened the passenger door, and got inside just before the vehicle sped off. 
Gladys said his car was still in the office parking structure as of this morning. When I got back to the mailroom, I noticed something on my desk that had not been there earlier. It was a large, hot pink envelope with my name written on the front in glittery gold letters. When I picked it up and turned it around, I saw someone had kissed the back where the envelope seals with a deep red lipstick. My stomach was in knots, so I opened it to reveal a red card shaped like a heart, and on the front, in bold black letters, it said, Be Mine. Heart racing, I slowly opened the card and read what was handwritten inside. Jessica, thank you for spending your Valentine's with me, knowing you were there. Watching made every sensation so much more exquisite. XO, XO, Veronica. Thanks for listening. Thank you to both of my authors. Uh, I had so much fun producing both of these. They were both so different but they were both so gory i love i don't know it was a great episode great episode uh good job everybody good job team me and you know everybody over here at the studio there's no studio it's just me in my spare bedroom (laughs) so um i hope you enjoyed the promo at the top of the show for stories with sapphire my buddy sapphire and You may have recognized a familiar voice in there. I'm so honored that she chose to use a little snippet of my true ghost story that I got to tell on her show. Go look for that episode. It's a fantastic show. It really is. It's, uh, if you're frustrated with modern, a lot of modern ghost telling and hunting where people just go into a room and scream at ghosts, this is the total opposite of that. Sapphire approaches the paranormal in such a respectful and beautiful and inclusive way. It's great. It's something that the paranormal world definitely needed. Um, go follow my show on Twitter, Instagram, um, Facebook, join the Facebook group. We're almost at 3000 of you. I'm so excited. This Saturday, I will be in the group chat for the live. Let's not meet season finale on Twitch. Um, I know Andrew has all of the links. I will try to, I will find a link and put it in the show notes, but it won't work obviously until Saturday, but it'll be at Saturday. It'll be on Saturday (laughs) at Saturday. I'll post some more about it. The actual times and everything. I don't have them in front of me right now. I can click around. Um, hold on. I'll be right back. Hold on a second. I'm back. It's Saturday, Saturday, the 27th at 7 PM Pacific standard time. And I will be in the chat. And I try to do some fun stuff with my video. I hope you like it. I am not a very, I'm very, very green at video editing. I haven't had to do a lot of it. And I try to make mine kind of spooky and fun. I hope you like it. All right, everyone. I think that's all for tonight. Please spread the word about the show so that Spotify, you know, keeps, keeps on keeping on with me in our relationship. That'd be cool. All right. Go get some sleep. Sweet dreams.